0: and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder.
1: It has been my privilege over the years to not only serve the Lord as a pastor, but also to the Lord has allowed me to do some work in the area of history and study. This particular Gettysburg Address has fascinated me throughout the years. I've actually read probably, I don't know how many books on it, uh, examining it. And if you ever take the time to walk through it, I actually encouraged our folks in preparation from this morning to take the time to work through it. You'll see some very clear patterns that have developed within it. You can almost hear the echoes, not only of biblical text, biblical and theological terms, that work around redemption and the delivering power and the grace of the Lord Jesus to set free those who are under the bondage of sin, that they might come to life. And the Lord brings from all the nations those whom he has set free into one holy nation that belongs to him. You can hear that. You also hear the echoes of the Apostles' Creed. Did you notice it at the very beginning? Conceived in liberty. That here is a death where men sacrificed that others may be set free. Men sacrifice that others may now live and that such a death can only be, con- it does not need to be consecrated. It is consecrated by its very purpose. Now, clearly, what is done there for national and political and social issues uh, draws from the great redemptive stories, does not equal it, but it does draw upon it. The glorious gospel has worked, in, has worked into itself into our culture on many occasions in many crises, and this was one of them. And it, not only does he talk of the last full measure and as the anticipation of how they gave everything and suffered that others might live and be set free. And the echoes, of course, pointing to something much greater where our Lord gives of his all at the cross And drinks the cup of the wrath of God that was due to sinners to set us free that we might live unto him. You can sense all of that running throughout it and then even notice the notion of born again that this nation thus conceived might now receive a new birth and its great aspirations of all men created equal and free, would be realized afresh and anew because of what happens on places like these battlefields. And then as he does it, he then puts in what Lincoln felt were the two great principles. A nation under God and a nation that had a government that was of the people by the people, and for the people. So a government that arises from the people by common consent, thus a constitutional republic. And then not only a a government that exists by covenant with the people have with one another, but a government that is not God, but is under God. Very carefully chose that phrase. He didn't say with God, he didn't say of God, he said under God. He very thoughtfully put that in there. Many people have discussed this, by the way, it's a great historical, was under God an afterthought or an aforethought? Well, I've done the, I've done the research and I can tell you I am absolutely convinced it was not. I actually learned early on in history that it was something that he put in extemporaneously. I don't believe so for a number of reasons because of the two extant copies of the Gettysburg Address that we have, uh, how they were given and what uh, Le- Lincoln himself said about them to, as those two copies were provided. One of them, by the way, to the man that spoke in front of him, the great orator, Edward Everett, uh, the great um, glorious uh, uh, orator that had been secured. In fact, he spoke before Lincoln for two hours plus no, we 're not related, uh, but um, two hours plus, and then Lincoln comes up with he speaks for two minutes and 28 seconds. He sits down and he says to Edward Everett, "I think," because there was just utter silence when he finished. He said, "I think it perhaps was poorly." constructed and delivered and Edward Everett says not so I've heard nothing greater that's why later he would ask for a copy of it I've heard nothing greater we are stunned and it of course has carried on Um, I don't know whether it's still done or not I'm not even sure we even teach civics any longer but when I in civics class we had to memorize this And and to work our way through it, even in the context of a public education at that time. It was really an astounding statement, but there's something even more astounding in this. And that's this that was written by his own hand. Our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln. He wrote it on his own hand with all of this theology built in, with all of these biblical terms with the reflections of the Apostles' Creed, with the penetration thoughts of what was known as the Book of Common Prayer. It all shows up and we could maybe sometime really do a deep dive into it. But this is the same man who decades before becoming president had had um, debated And actually was a great adversary of one of the um, evangelists of the Second Great Awakening. His name was Peter Cartwright. They were political foes and they were theological foes. In fact, Lincoln had written um, a small uh, work um, in which he questioned as a skeptic the authority, the reliability, and the inerrancy of the four Gospels. Now, he never denied the faith, but he did take an adversarial role. Um, I think a lot of it was personal animosity that went back and forth between him and Mr. Cartwright, whom he felt manipulated people instead of speaking to people. Lincoln felt that a true religion, while having emotional impact, must not be based on emotion, but upon the rational grasp of truth. He was willing to be convinced that truth has a supernatural dynamic to it. A supra-rational dynamic to it. But that it ought not to be irrational. And so he entered into that debate with Cartwright and others. But it's amazing how God in his sovereign grace tracks us down, isn't it? So in 1850, in Springfield, Illinois, his beloved Eddie, one of his sons takes ill and is in the throes of a severe illness for 52 days. And as he is in this illness for 52 days, Lincoln begins to go into despair. And finally, Eddie dies. And when he does, the the two pastors he called upon at the Methodist and the Episcopal Church were not available. So he goes to Dr. James Smith what we used to call back then an old-school Calvinistic Presbyterian preacher, the pastor of First Presbyterian Church, who came and began to deal eye-to-eye about the matters of eternity, the matters of salvation, the matters of grace, and spoke pointedly with President Lincoln and his wife. And then, of course, Lincoln's mother's background was Presbyterian, so he gave him the audience, and, um, and they began to meet regularly after that. Interestingly, Dr. James Smith was one of the top scholars and authors who, as an apologist, defends the inerrancy of God's Word. He had published three books. He gave them to Mr. Lincoln, and they would spend many, many hours discussing them. Lincoln's family goes into their inquirer's class, and Lincoln's family then joins the church. And he actually, what they used to do, called rent a pew. There will be a box on your way out. <laughs> you would rent the pew, a family pew, and uh, he did so. But he personally did not yet join, although he would regularly attend and regularly meet with uh James Smith, Dr. James Smith, who would also um, discuss with him, share the gospel with him, and challenge him regularly. As you know, he's elected president, and he's on his way now, 10 years later, in 1860, to the inauguration. He meets with Dr. Smith and says, I would like to continue. Is there someone of your capabilities and convictions? I want someone who will preach the word of God not who will speak of politics to me. And he said, yes, I know just the man, another old school Presbyterian preacher. His name was Dr. Phineas Gurley. Would you all mind a little personal note? I actually pastored his great-great-granddaughter in Charlotte, North Carolina. And um Dr. Phineas Gurley was the pastor of New york avenue Presbyterian Church, a church that had been the result of two other churches coming together in eighteen fifty nine and You can go and visit that church today it's it's beautiful sanctuary it 's Lincoln Chapel. Lincoln was offered a pew at First Presbyterian Church, which many which other presidents and uh, and, um, and um, celebrated elected officials would attend and be a part of. But he said, no, I wish to go as my pastor in Springfield has directed me. And so he struck up a relationship with Dr. Gurley, who was quite the preacher. And then he uh, began to meet with him also on a regular basis. When president lincoln took office he would open up the doors he felt um, as did other presidents before him that this was the people's house the white house and they ought to have access so he would open it up and they would come and meet with him a a later a christian lady from new york state came and met with him she happened to be of a quaker descent and so she was a pacifist Realizing that we were at war, she said, I want to meet with you, President Lincoln. I, as you know, I do not um, affirm war, but I realize we are in one, and I wish to simply come and meet with you and talk with you a few moments and then pray for you if you would allow me. He said, yes. The 10-minute visit stretched on to an hour. When she left, he turned to one of his uh, assistants, secretaries, and said to them, Whenever this woman comes, she must have immediate access to me. I have met a Christian in whom there is no guile. And she would be a regular visit to pray with him uh, throughout these early months and the early years of the war. And then um and then of course there came another tragedy. Now Willie, another one of his sons, took to cholera because of the Uh, the the terrible water supply in Washington. And he uh, had cholera and went into a lengthy illness. There was an African-American servant who cared for him and nursed him 24 hours a day. She wouldn't leave his side. Uh, President Lincoln would come in every night, usually dozing off uh, finally, but he would sit all night with his precious Willie. And he would talk with this African-American servant who knew Christ and would share the gospel with President Lincoln and shared with him of Willie's commitment to Christ and that he was ready to meet the Lord, which he did. Dr. Phineas Gurley, now his pastor, then comforted the family and he did the service. And it was noted by all the pensive look upon Abraham Lincoln, his face His countenance changed. There was something about him. He did not lose his wit, but there was something of sobriety that these events, the conversations, and, of course, the horrors of war was was actually bringing into his life. He then began, unknown to many people, a series of reflections. You can access them. They're called Meditations Upon the Divine Will. I won't share with you everything that he wrote, but I will share with you his conclusion. Interestingly, on the other side of this war was a man named Robert E. Lee who wrote the same conclusion in one of his journals, and this was it. That the arrogance of our nation and the presence of chattel slavery has brought us under the wrath of God. It remains to be seen. Is this the wrath of God to discipline us for that which is ahead or to dismiss us because of our great sins? We will know at the end of this conflict. You can see his thoughts were going very deep. That was in 1862. Then comes not only the Battle of Antietam, but then the Battle of Gettysburg, and then the setting aside in November to consecrate what is now the National Cemetery in Gettysburg. Uh, Abraham Lincoln had not been invited to speak. He actually invited himself. And the, um, and the, commission that was in charge of it said let us poll the states (laughs) it's really interesting so they polled the states to see if he would be able to speak and they gave him permission for a brief word of soberness I quote and uh, so he did what he was asked to do and thus you have the Gettysburg address well that's not all that happens in his life Under Dr. Gurley, he becomes convinced of his sins. Dr. Gurley becomes a mentor. He would be there. You can go there to the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church and see the pew where he and his wife, uh, Mary Todd Lincoln, would sit on the Lord's Day morning. But he also attended Sunday nights. Let me repeat. The president of the United States in a war regularly attended Sunday nights would you let that sink in for a few more minutes and then he um, but when he would come on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights he didn't sit out in the um, at his pew because it would draw attention and he didn't want to do that uh, they, he could be regularly accommodated on Sunday morning, but he didn't want to cause anything, disturbance. So there was a sofa. It's still there today. It sits in the chapel, the Lincoln Chapel. It would sit right beside the anteroom uh, where the pastor would go into the pulpit from which to preach. And he would sit there and listen to the sermon, and afterwards Dr. Gurley would come. Dr. Gurley said we constantly talked about how to handle the freeing of the slaves. The 13th, the 14th Amendment, all of these amendments became subjects of what about a policy? What kind of a policy to readmit the states um, in which there were um, uh, the southern states? And what kind of what do we do about education? What do we and they would have these lengthy discussion? He would say, give me the biblical principles on these matters, not the political. I've got plenty of help there. Give me the biblical principles. And they would talk about it. But the number one subject that he wanted to talk about, according to Dr. Gurley's journal, was the state of the soul after death. That was the number one subject. He knew the ultimate state, the final state, a new body for the new heavens and the new earth. But he loved to talk with him about the intermediate state, the soul that is with the Lord in the paradise of blessing, not the final state, the new heavens and the new earth, But in that state, what would it be like? And they would have lengthy conversations about it. Dr. Gurley later would say it was almost as if the Lord was preparing him. Well, President Lincoln committed his life to Christ and arranged with Dr. Gurley to join the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church in 1865. But he said, we're not going to do it. We're not going to do it until after the inauguration. Now, back then, the inauguration was in uh, March or um, uh, end of March and uh, 1st of April. So he said, we won't do it until after then. Well, of course, you're probably, in your mind, working through the calendar and know that there was the inauguration in March of 1865, and then the first week of April, of course, President Lincoln was assassinated. And Dr. Gurley did not get to do what president lincoln had asked him to do which was to baptize him after he joined the new york avenue presbyterian church but he did do his funeral and um, actually had the last words in his ear as he prayed with him before he took his last breath after the assassination at ford theater and being taken across the street and placed upon a bed and then it was after that that the secretary of war said he now belongs to the ages. Dr. Gurley would later write, he now is with the Lord. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Now what is it I'd like to maybe share with you a couple of thoughts here. Uh, and this is, these are, these are my thoughts for you. Uh, number one, please notice how God Uses in his providence events and people for, I say this reverently, for the bloodhound of heaven, the Holy Spirit, to track us down and bring us to saving faith in Christ. He used a couple of preachers. He used uh, the two providential deaths of two sons that were brought to heaven in an untimely way for a family, but in the perfect timing of the Lord. And he does so in such a way that when the man is saved, his life gets changed. Up until now, no president ever used the personally revealed name of God in their speeches. It was the author of our religion, creator, the, the, um, uh, the, um, uh, the transcendent one. They would always use the politically correct language of that day. But not Lincoln. There's only one speech that Lincoln gave that he did not use God in the speech. And that was his first inaugural address. My goodness, if you go read his speeches, the meditations upon the divine will, you'll see his constant referencing of God. And perhaps one of the greatest speeches was a six-minute inaugural speech that he made upon the second inauguration. Listen to this last paragraph. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in. Let us bind up the nation's wounds to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his offering, to achieve and cherish a lasting peace among ourselves and with the world, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and a lasting peace among ourselves, with the world, and with all of the nations. What a profound speech that he gave time and time again, and except for the first inaugural address, in which I don't believe he was yet converted, all of them reference in a personal and theologically accurate and yet intimate way the God who had so impacted him. What you may not know, of course, is that uh, what you may not know and think you probably should know is that a later preacher uh, in um, at New York Avenue Presbyterian Church was uh, a guy by the name of Peter Marshall and his pastorate there. They made a movie about it. If you want to see the movie, uh, a man called Peter and um, and that was a later pastor. And it was in the context of the 1950s. That on a Sunday night, somewhat like this, there was a special service to commemorate the celebration of President Lincoln, a member of that church uh, in Absentia, um, to commemorate his birthday, which is in February, and that um, and so they someone gave a speech that was about. Twice as what I've shared with you and contains more details of Lincoln's life and his conversion with the things that I have shared with you and others and when they finished that night they made two points Lincoln put in under God because he believed no nation should allow itself to take the place of God you're not God you're not even with God You are under God. This nation must always see itself under God. Secondly, they acknowledged that his desire was what he declared in 1863, that the fourth Thursday in November would be a day of thanksgiving in accordance with the desires of our first president, George Washington. The third thing that they mentioned is that he believed that Washington's desire he obviously was a student of Washington that Washington's desire that the country would adopt a motto in God we trust would yet be done and placed upon all of our coinage that we would not trust in money but God alone well sitting out there on a Sunday night service and hearing that testimony and those three things was a senator and a congressman. I'll repeat, a Sunday night service, a senator and a congressman. And then you will also notice that they heard and they went back and under the leadership of Dwight David Eisenhower, who would come to Christ and be baptized at First Presbyterian Church in Gettysburg, just blocks from where this speech was given decades earlier under Dwight David Eisenhower they would take what was a humanist pledge of allegiance and change it by inserting under God which you just did that was by law from that testimony of uh, on that night and that was put into law have you ever noticed how we always do it wrong I pledge allegiance right to the flag of the United States of America, one nation. And then we pause. Well, there's no pause. There's no comma. You're supposed to say one nation under God. But we always pause. Why? Because for years it had been done without under God. It had been inserted. And so everybody paused because it was now inserted. Not because it's grammatically supposed to pause, but because it hadn't been there before and they were just getting used to it. So we still do it that way to this day. And then in God we trust was put on our money by legislation. And then Thanksgiving was made a national holiday for us by legislation also. Now, Pastor, why are you telling me? I mean, I'm glad that's all interesting. But why are you telling me that? Here's what I want you to know. I don't care if you're a president, a mechanic, a plumber, a lawyer, homemaker. I don't care what you are. Consistent Christians, when you live for Christ, what you do echoes not only into eternity, but into the coming years. What God did in his life not only saved him, not only set a standard for a nation in time of crisis, but kept blessing us even to this day. When God works in his people, there are no small people. God does great things and draws straight lines with crooked sticks. And he does so In such a way that he alone gets the glory. Let's pray. Father thank you. For the moments we could be together in your word. Thank you for the privilege to enjoy this evening of celebration. And now of fellowship. And we pray that Christ would be exalted. I pray that everyone here might not only give you thanks for what you have done in this nation, not only would encourage those who have served to protect this nation, but most of all would know the God of glory. And while we are grateful for social, political freedoms that we have in this nation, we look to and enjoy and invite all to the greatest freedom of all, that when you come to Christ, He will save you from the penalty, the power, increasingly from the practice, and one day when He comes, will save us from the presence of sin. Praise be to God, of glory and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: You have been listening to a message by Harry Reader. Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.